the Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you uh, any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. Let us go now to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you give to us. Again, we praise you for this word that has been given, this gift, so that we might know you more fully. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would soften hardened hearts, that we might hear your word and understand, and that it would indeed penetrate into us and change us and conform us more and more into your image. Lord, we ask that you would do these things today. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. <coughs> you know, there are times in life where it just seems like you move from one problem to another. Uh, you know, sometimes you might have a short reprieve, uh, a brief rest, but ultimately uh, there are times where you feel like uh, trouble surrounds you and just continuously crops up around you. You know, uh, you solve one problem and enter into the next, and it's sort of like out of the frying pan and into the fire, so to speak. Well, as we come to Exodus 15:22 and following this morning, the text of Exodus. Uh, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I have. It, it is beginning to feel a bit like that. Uh, since page one of Exodus chapter one, what have we encountered with the people of God? Over and over again, we've been facing troubles of all kinds for God's people. In fact, it seems to be a major theme that runs throughout the whole of the book. God's people have been oppressed under harsh slavery. They've had their children taken from them and slain before them as they were cast into the Nile. They've borne a heavy load, enough that God's people would cry out for help to their God. And once God finally does come to rescue them after many years and after many seasons, we see God's people 
wander out into a desert where they are hemmed in suddenly by the deep behind and the great army of Egypt before. And finally, even at this scene, God delivers his people. He saves them from his and our enemies and drowns them in the sea of his wrath. And God's people are saved. They are delivered. And so, you know, of course, we think so. everything will be hunky-dory now, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, God's people can look back on the salvation of their God and they can march forward into the promised land. That's what they seem to be singing about even a few verses ago uh, with full victory before them. They're not going to face any more problems along the way, or at least that is the way it sounds in this victory song. Just smooth sailing from here on out because God saved them. How could life possibly be hard after that? But we know that's not what happens. God's people will face all kinds of trouble as they walk through this wilderness as pilgrims and sojourners who have not yet reached their home. And people of God, I hope that you can even hear, as I'm saying these things, the parallels from Exodus to ourselves as God's people, as the church. Because as God's people... Their troubles are our troubles. Uh, Let me put it this way. Is Christianity the kind of religion where once you are saved from your sins, once you understand Christ as your Lord and Savior and come to rest and receive Christ Jesus by faith alone as he is offered to us in the gospel, do all of your troubles go away? Do they all disappear from before you? You know, is that the end of the story or is it merely the beginning? I think the reality that we all face trials of one kind or another is true enough that I don't even need to defend it, uh, that they are coming. But I do want you to see that here, and and here, what happens to the people of God in this situation, immediately, almost instantaneously, after they are saved from destruction, a tension begins building in the text when Moses leads them into the wilderness. Moses leads them into the wilderness. As I said, Israel has been uh, uh, just brought through these waters of, uh, of trial, of judgment that have come down upon the enemies of God. They've been standing now for a moment, a, a brief reprieve uh, on the shores of the Red Sea as they watch the enemies of God disappear beneath the waves of God's judgment and then wash up on the shore of the sea, uh, uh, you know, doing the dead man's float. And they question as they stand there, you know, they kind of probably looking at each other, now what, you know, uh, what's going to happen now? How's life going to move on from here? Now that God has been victorious over the greatest enemy the people of God have faced in this world or that the world has ever known, now that the peoples have sung praises to him and have begun to worship him, what should they do? Where should they go? How should their conquest begin? That's on the minds of the people of Israel. And you'll remember That the people of God at this moment no longer fear whatever may come, whatever new enemies they may face because they've seen God at work. They have seen him thrown the horse and rider into the sea. And so the text is building this anticipation of what is coming next. And then our text reads, Moses caused Israel then to be led away from the Red Sea. He's moving away from these waters of trouble only to find new waters of trouble and we'll get into that in a minute but that 
uh, introduction, those first few words, they may not seem very interesting to you. In fact, they might seem like just uh, a basic storytelling background information where one thing happens and the storyteller is just telling you the next thing that happens, letting you know uh, what's coming in the sequence of events. But you need to see something here in those first words in order to make sense of what is going to happen over the next few chapters and in our verses particularly this morning. You see, in chapter 16, we're going to see Israel grumble and complain against Moses and against their God because they don't have any food. And then in chapter 17, we're going to see the same thing, the people of Israel rising up to grumble and complain against their God because they don't have anything to drink. And there are all kinds of applications that we're going to draw from those two particular texts uh, uh, for our own lives as we get there. Uh, We'll get there when uh, uh, we come to those. We'll give them their due time. And if you just look ahead to those next two chapters, those bits of chapter 16 and 17, and you know what's coming, and then you look back at chapter 15, then we're tempted to see the same exact thing going on here. Because right in the middle of our text, in verse 24, what do we see? The people of God will grumble for a very similar reason. In fact, many commentators will sort of lump these three stories together, basically arguing that they are picturing the same thing. But if that's true, why tell the same story three times? If nothing has changed, if there's no differences between them, if the basic problem is always the same, why tell three versions of it? There are significant enough differences between them to say, what's going on here in our verses that's different from those in those to come? Now, I say that, I put that out and draw your attention to point this one thing out. One of the biggest differences over in our verses this morning in the next two chapters is who the focus of the text is on. Chapter 15 does something a little bit different from 16 and 17 to come in that it hones in on Moses very specifically here. This servant of the Lord by whose hand God has delivered the people of God who has carried that staff that miracles were performed by, the one whose hands were raised over the Red Sea like Charleston Heston in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, You know, as the waters are parted by his hand, God is focusing in on Moses in this particular instance and in this case. And one of the reasons I say this is because notice, notice how it begins in verse, uh, begins here in those first few verses, verses chapter 16 and 17. It says, Then Moses caused Israel to be led away from the waters. He's the subject matter here. He is the subject even in that sentence. And it's very different from chapter 16 when it says, all the congregation of the people of Israel set out. In chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on. There's different focus on who is the centerpiece in this particular text. Now, that may not seem like much of a difference, but in the last two, again, Israel as a collective people is the main subject. They're the ones whose actions we're supposed to watch and take note of. But here, it is... Moses' actions that are center stage. He's the main player here. And that actually becomes clearer even in a little bit uh, uh, later on in verse 25 when the Hebrew reads, then the Lord set for him a statute and a rule. And there he tested him. And some of your English translations might say them, 
there. And the reason is that uh, uh, the translators will often take it as a collective, and I'll explain that in a minute. But as we talk about this, who is the him? The only people in this text are either Israel, a collective people, a group who's, uh, as I said, is usually referred to in the plural, like you see in chapters 16 and 17, although sometimes in the scriptures, Israel can be referred to in a singular voice, but it's more rare. It does happen. For example, it says, out of Egypt, I have called my son, singular, and he's talking about the whole people of God here. And so the hymn could either refer to Israel in a collective whole or more simply, and the easiest read is he could be referring to Moses alone. And that makes them, seems to make more sense of the text here because Moses is pointed out even in the first verse as the main character. He's the one whose eyes, our eyes, are to be upon right from the beginning. Notice how the text unfolds and how it seems to develop. Immediately after the Red Sea, Moses causes the people of God to be led out into the wilderness. And as soon as Moses does this, as soon as Moses becomes the catalyst for marching them out into the wilderness, the problem in the text arises. For three days when that journeyed into the wilderness, they found no water. I don't know if you've uh, ever experienced this, if you've ever been out in true wilderness uh, but water, and again, I know this is no new thing, but water is essential. It's always essential. Literally, uh, we can't go more than three days without it. But you don't quite get the sense of desperation and the, the, how much you utterly depend on it when you know you can walk into your kitchen sink, open up the tap, and get a glass of water. But you do when you're an hour away from civilization and you can't find water and your uh, water bags are empty. I mean, this is a real problem that is beginning to set in for the people of God. Life problems don't get much more difficult than this. I mean, the essence of our life is dependent on finding this thing, and it's not here. How am I going to survive, let alone how am I going to keep my children and my wife alive or even my livestock that are with me? How are any of us going to survive if we can't find water? And the tension of the text centers on what is Moses going to do. There's no water. Is he going to provide for them? You know, it's the same question we ask as Christians, people of God. You know, through Christ Jesus, we begin this journey into a strange land as we are pilgrims and strangers and exiles here, as Peter and the author of Hebrews tells us. This world is not our home. And we're looking for a city whose designer and builder is God. Nevertheless, the question is, how is God going to provide for us in the here and the now? That is what is often on our minds and front and center in our lives. Will everything in our lives turn out hunky-dory? I mean, what is it that you grow anxious about? That's the question that you're asking. If you're anxious about something in your life, how is God going to provide for me? How is he going to take care of this particular situation? I mean, that's how our God how our beloved Savior is going to provide for us now. And that's the question that God's people have for Moses, the servant of the Lord who has delivered them from death. And they question him now because the water has run out. And this wilderness is a hard place. And in case you don't realize how hard it is, uh, uh, the text will emphasize its difficulty to us. They come to a place called Marah or bitterness. 
And this word, it gets repeated four times so that you don't miss the point. Uh, they finally come to a place that has water, and the text says this, they came to Mara, they came to bitterness, and they could not drink the water of Mara because it was Mara. Therefore, they called it Mara. That sounds a bit redundant, and that's on purpose, so that you get a bigger picture and an idea here. Let me say it in English so you, you, you can hear the fullness of it. They came in the wilderness to bitterness. And they could not drink the water of bitter because it was bitter. Therefore, it was called bitter. Life is very bitter for them, in case you didn't catch that. And this is not just a bump in the road. This is not just a small thing. This is a serious issue that is before us. There has been no water. And now the water that they have found is undrinkable. And that reality is causing not only a bitterness before them, but it is beginning to well up inside of God's people as well. And the people of God grumble against Moses. What shall we drink? You're the one who led us out into this wilderness. You're the one who is leading us. What is it that we should be, uh, or how are you going to provide for us? Again, the focus on the text is not Israel so much as it's about Moses' response and what we see him do. And what we see him do is Moses cries out to the Lord, and Moses, from the hand of the Lord, receives a law. Moses receives a law. It's not what you're expecting. God's people come to Moses, they bring their complaint, and Moses immediately turns to Yahweh, to his Lord, to his provider, and he cries out to him, just as God's people cried out to him in Egypt. And God hears him, and he answers Moses, saying, you see that tree over there? You know, I want you to take that tree, and I want you to throw it into the bitter waters. And Moses does all that God instructs him to do concerning the tree, and behold, that which was bitter to the people of God is made sweet. And you hear that, and you might think, well, that's interesting. What a glorious way that our God provides. And it's true, but what does it mean? I mean, what's going on here? Well, there's a word being used here when God answers Moses, when he speaks to him. The scripture says the Lord showed him, or the Lord instructed him concerning a wood. And that word for instruction in Hebrew is yara, which might sound a little familiar to you. Maybe it doesn't, but it might, uh, because it is the verb form of a noun in the Old Testament for Torah or law or instruction. In other words, we can see God giving this particular man a law, sort of like what he will do in, chapter, uh, in five chapters in Exodus 20. He gives Moses a law. He gives him an instruction, and he instructs him in a certain way. And what do we see Moses do? We see him obey that word fully and completely. He takes the tree that has been pointed out to him, and he throws it into the bitter water. And behold, the bitter water becomes sweet water through that word that is given. And suddenly, the bitterness of the wilderness is made sweet. And as God's people walk through the wilderness, a sweetness comes into the midst of the bitterness. It comes through one, and it comes through one who has kept the law and the instructions of God perfectly. I hope you're hearing echoes here, but in case you think this is all a stretch, I want you to consider verse 25 that says, There the Lord made for him 
a statute and a rule. God gave him a law. And there in the wilderness, God tested him concerning that particular law. And then God says this, If you truly hear the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and you hear my commandments and you keep watch over all my statutes, then all the sicknesses which I have brought upon Egypt, all that curse that has fallen upon the people opposed to my will, I will not set upon you because I, the Lord, am your healer. So God gives Moses a law and says, if you keep my law, if you hear my voice and my commandments, and if you always do them, you will be blessed. And there is truth to that, isn't there? You know, if you always do do what is right, your reward will be great. If you always do what God asks you to do, then you will have the blessed life. I mean, if you live by God's law, life and health and the blessed life are yours forevermore. I mean, that was the promise given to Adam. Wasn't it? If you just keep my word, if you hear my voice, if you do what I have instructed you to do, do it and you will have life. You will have the blessed life. But the problem comes in when we enter the scene, doesn't it? The problem is we don't do this. Try as we might or even as much as we want to keep God's law, we slip into our own sins far too easily. I mean, just be honest with yourself for a minute. How easy is it to complain about something you don't like? I don't care if it's the breakfast that you ate. I don't care if it's something that your spouse has done for you. I don't care if it's circumstances at work or the situation at church. How easy is it to slip in a complaint when things aren't going the way that you want? And in the eyes of our God, and we'll see this in two weeks, that is an egregious sin. It is a very serious thing to complain to our God concerning the life that he has set before us. And yet we do this all the time. We backbite one another. And if someone is doing something that you don't like, how do you treat them? I mean, it, it doesn't matter if it's your pastor who displeased you or your child or your spouse. We easily grow angry with one another. We gossip about one another. And I mean, in short, we cannot keep this law that God has given to us. We cannot earn that eternal life, that blessed life that is held out for us. All you have to do is keep this law, and we can't do it, not even on a single day of our life. And that word that comes to us, that law that says, do this and live, it becomes bitterness for us because we can't drink it, we cannot fulfill it, and it is killing us. We can't earn God's love. We can't earn his flavor. We can't earn the blessedness of it without living perfectly before him. We cannot keep God's law and his statutes perfectly. And I think we all do agree God's law is a good law. It's a good idea not to murder and steal, but we just can't keep from backstabbing our neighbors. I'm going to use a, a, a buzzword for the day. We are messy people. We are broken and ugly people. And that good law, that good word of God becomes a curse upon us. Even as Galatians tells us, when we fail at standards, for Galatians 3 said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. It becomes a curse to us. It becomes a bitterness 
in our mouths, this word that ought to be sweet as we taste it, and yet it is bitter for we cannot do it. And that's why we need a single man to come, a servant of the Lord who would enter into human history, born of the Virgin Mary, and do what was right always. He always kept the law of God perfectly. Even where Moses fails, as we will see later on in the book of Exodus, where Moses cannot keep the will of God perfectly and the word of God perfectly, even when Moses failed, Christ succeeds. That's why Hebrews says Christ is greater even than Moses because he keeps God's law perfectly. Christ knew that man does not live by bread alone, yet he never once grumbled against his heavenly father for the fate that was his, even the fate of giving up his own life, or even the time when he was wandering about in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food and without water. And Christ keeps the instruction of God. He keeps the Torah of God perfectly and then dies upon a cursed wood. He gives that, uh, his life there, redeeming us from the bitterness of the law and the curse of the law that we cannot keep. He takes that bitterness and that law upon himself and into himself so that we might drink of the sweet waters of eternal life. It is interesting you'll notice how the text here ends. After the waters of Marah are made sweet because one man kept the law of God, the instruction of God, the peoples of God through him come to rest in an oasis where 12 streams of water flow and 70 palm trees lie. Both those number 7 and 12, they communicate a fullness, a completeness. It's a picture of God Enter, or God's people, excuse me, entering into a full and complete rest, a paradise, if you will. All of their needs are met. All their concerns are provided for. And in fact, it reminds you of the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, where the river of life flows from the throne room of God into the city and into the street of God. And on either side, the tree of life blossoms with its 12 fruits. And it says the leaves were for the healings of the nations, much like what you have here. God says, I will be your healer. And there he will heal the nations if one man will keep this law. You see, people of God, Christ dies on a cross, a wooden cross, so that the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith and that law now, for those who are in Christ, who have that promised spirit given to them by faith, that law has become sweetness again to us. As we strive to follow his laws and statutes now, we know that his law is good. And we have died to the curse of it. It is no longer a curse hanging over our heads, but it is a guide guiding us to Christ both as we are conformed more and more into his image, both as we see our need to grow in holiness, but it guides us back to Christ too when we fail that law, for we see our ever-growing and dependent need upon him, the one who kept that law perfectly on our behalf. People of God, as we walk through this life, as the law of God guides us through this wilderness, as he points us forward to the paradise of God where we will dwell with him and see him face to face 
Indeed, truly, we will be blessed even when there is no water, even when the cupboards are bare. Why? Because the God-man came and he kept the law. He heard the the word of the Lord and he obeyed him to the full, taking the curse of wood upon himself, throwing himself into the waters of judgment so that you, people of God, would taste and see and know that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever, regardless of what real trials you may face in your life. Regardless of what real circumstances come to you that seem to overwhelm you, you can know, you can look in truth and hold on to the reality that our Lord is good. His steadfast love endures. How can we know? Because we see him dying on the cross that you might have life. No matter how bitter things may be in your wilderness, no matter how difficult things may look now, no matter how bitter life may be. Christ Jesus comes, and he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You know what that picture is? It's a picture of a spring springing up in a dry desert wilderness. And suddenly the plants blooming out of nothingness, a forest, a paradise crumbing out of it. People of God, trust anew and afresh in your God who provides a way for us through the wilderness and into the blessed life forever. And indeed, the one who has made the bitterness of the law sweetness upon our lips. For now, we can take the words of God upon us. We can trust in them, and they are sweet, refreshing oasis awaiting for us. People of God, may we long for that day, surely, when we will see him face to face. And yet, as we long for that day, may he continue to conform us and mold us into his image, making us more and more like him, even as he does so, even as he continues to go forth, healing the nations of all of their sicknesses and disease in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we we come before you and we thank you for surely, Father, what else is there for us to do? We praise you with joy and thanksgiving for what you have done for us in Christ, for everything else that happens in life. Father, help us to see life, the true life circumstances that we're going through, the difficulties that lay before us both individually and as a congregation. Help us to see them through the lenses of Christ. Help us to see what it is that you have accomplished for your church and are continuing to do for her even now, how you will provide for you, have surely provided your only Son the one who would keep the law of God perfectly for us, the one who would die to take that curse away from us. Father, help us to rest upon him and to know these truths in order that we can look at our life circumstances and know that you will provide, to know that you will take care of us from the beginning of days to the end of days. You are our God and we are your people. We thank you for the work that you have begun. 
And we pray that you will bring it to completion on the day that you have established. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.